Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we uh, um, enter into this Advent season and we uh, prepare our hearts for Christmas, that that actually would be what we do, um, that this season would not be different for us from other seasons of the year, that our hearts and minds would be set squarely, solely, and most greatly on Jesus Christ, his glorious gospel, the good things he has in store for us, and the great things he has done. We pray, Father, that uh, we would not be so caught up uh, in the pressures and cares of this world, that we would lose sight of him who is most precious during this season, and so lose sight of exactly why we have the season to begin with. Father, we pray that as uh, some, especially here, we pray locally in Cleveland, Father, that those who uh, might be looking to reconnect with a church during this season, uh, thinking that Christmas is a time they should be in church, Christmas is a time they should be with family, that you would guide them uh, to healthy churches, to places that are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. May they find, even by their own accounts accidentally, the hope and peace and joy that can be found only in him. May we be sensitive and caring and loving of our neighbors and our co-workers that we might show them and speak to them this gospel message. And Father, we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters living in uh, the United Arab Emirates. We pray for those churches there that they would be able to use this season to, to show uh, the goodness, the glory, the necessity of the incarnation of God himself in the flesh. That they would be effective in communicating uh, to their Muslim neighbors, how often Islam has misinterpreted the Christian message, the doctrine of the incarnation, and that they would see that there is the only hope for sin in a God who takes on flesh. We pray for a gospel movement to flourish there and for the good news to go out and for there to be uh, a revival among the Muslim population. We pray, Father, even as we think about all the different cultures and languages that have gathered together in the United Arab Emirates, and we pray for their hearing of the gospel. We pray that as we hear about those different languages and cultures from ancient history, that you would open our hearts to hear your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis 11. We have two messages left here in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a longer book than that, but that's where we are taking a break in Genesis uh, before doing something a little bit more Christmas-themed, although I think there's a nice connection with this passage. So verses, uh, verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as 
people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there, go, go down, and there confuse their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is, was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord confused, excuse, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. I think I mixed up my notes here. Hold on. I did. Um, hey, it's uh, the end of the year. You're probably thinking ahead to next year. And what are your goals? Because that's what we kind of do this time of year, right? We, we, we set goals about the, the upcoming year. Um, but more than that, what do you want to accomplish? What are your goals for the rest of your life? What are your life goals? Whether you have a, a lot yet to live or a little left to live, None of us really know. You know, when we're young, we have dreams, maybe, of being rich, of, of, of being famous, of being powerful, of being important. Maybe some of us still do. Uh, as I get closer to the so-called middle age, which I choose to believe starts at 60, um, I, I think one reason people have the so-called midlife crisis is, is that they had these great dreams but then they realize they aren't there. And I think that causes some people to despair, and it causes some other people to try to make up for lost time in some sort of panic, to do something to leave a mark on the world while they're still here. Uh, my, my small group, uh, my growth group, is reading Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and in one of the last chapters, uh, Donald Whitney uh, asks a really good question, I think, which is how many people can name all of their great-grandparents. So that's just, that's eight people who were probably, I mean, everyone's family was a little different, but probably all of them were alive just 50 years ago. And they had a profound impact on every single moment of your life, like starting with your existence. And most people can't name those eight people. I can't. I've got six for sure. And I'm actively researching my family tree, and I can only get three-fourths. Now, I don't think it's wrong to know, not know those names, but it goes to show us that the vast majority of people are not going to be remembered in this world, are they? Some people, desperate not to be forgotten, uh, they erect giant crypts 
and towering monuments in the cemetery so that at the very least, a few hundred years from now, someone will walk by and say, Smith, wow, he must have been somebody. I haven't found any of those in my family, just flat markers lying above the grass line, and sometimes I can't find those, making me wonder if they were too poor to have even that. But Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes about the seeming emptiness of decent people coming to horrible ends and, and terrible people coming out pretty good. And he counseled, man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. I think part of his pessimism was that some, some good people who deserved to be remembered in his mind are quickly forgotten and some truly wicked people are remembered well past their days. And that can be maddeningly meaningless, can't it? We've come uh, to the, the second to last sermon in this, this short series, and it's a passage we probably think we all know very well. It's a story about, you know, it seems like, how come there's different languages? A story about this people who makes this giant tower that reaches improbable heights. A story about how God was so threatened by their attempt to reach him that he scrambled all their words and sent them away. Now nobody understands anybody anymore. But much like a lot of the stories in the early chapters of Genesis, there's a really good chance we've misunderstood this one, or at least made it into something that it's not. This isn't really a story about different languages. At most, that's secondary. Like all of Genesis, it's a story about who God is and who we are and who we are to be. But at its heart is a simple premise. You may dare to go up, but beware that God will come down. We're going to take this story just about verse by verse. It's short for one thing. And, and for two, uh, it's really kind of how the beats of this story are broken up uh, in a way that the front half of the story sort of mirrors the back half. And in that way, the central point is right in the center of the passage. So let's dig in. The, uh, the passage begins with very simple words. Now the earth had one language and the same words. And that's a contrast to what we read in chapter 10. So in chapter 10, we learned about all the different nations and all the different groups and all the different languages that they spoke. But, but that was part of a genealogy that was used to open this section of the book of Genesis, the generations of the sons of Noah, or what became of Noah and his sons. And so this verse sort of resets our minds and puts us back into the midst of all those peoples in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we learned that through this genealogy, they spread out. And this first verse alerts us that what's taking place is more or less before all that spreading out got underway. And by giving us some cognitive dissonance, hey, we know that people speak different languages, and they have for a very long time. And so we kind of get this sense, hey, maybe this passage is going to key us in on that. And that leads us to verse 2. And people, as they migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so this is where the, the action of the story begins. We have the, the very beginning of the spreading out mentioned in chapter 10, or at least early in that process. And it's a little bit unclear if it should be translated migrated from the east or migrated to the east or migrated in the east, but it, it really doesn't matter for the point of the story. 
What we do know is that in their migration, they found this land of Shinar. We don't know anything from history about the plain in the land of Shinar. But we do know where it was. Because back in chapter 10, we read that Nimrod built several cities in the plain of Shinar. Uh, Babel, Akkad, Erech, and Kalneh. And we know where Babel and Erech were exactly. And we have a very good idea of the location of Akkad. Kalneh is a mystery, but those three is pretty good data to tell us the region. The Zagros Mountains that run through western Iran, northeast Iraq, as you come down off those mountains into the east, the land opens up into a broad, flat region dominated by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And, and the west of that is some rocky deserts, but that land in between the mountains and the desert it's about as rich as a land you could find in that part of the world. It's the part of world where they once grew wild wheat until we domesticated it and sent it to Kansas. It's that land of agricultural possibility. Some of the world's first great cities and civilizations grew up, including Babel or Babylon, Erech or Uruk, and Akkad which was likely somewhere near Baghdad. So the Shinar Plain was probably uh, the region of southern Iraq, southwest Iran, northeastern Kuwait, that stretched from the Persian Gulf in the south to Baghdad or so in the north, maybe continuing up a little further north toward Assyria. But if, if you pull up like Google Earth or a satellite view of Google Maps, you see this green-gray blob extending from the Persian Gulf, and it's surrounded by brown. And I'm sure geology has changed a bit over the centuries, but that greenish area will give you a pretty good idea of where the plain of Shinar was. We know that Noah and his sons came to rest in the mountains of Ararat, which was probably in the Armenian highlands, which connect with the Zagros Mountains. And so as people begin to spread out, uh, going southish was, was probably a pretty good way to get down off those mountains. And you can imagine that they found this, this land that is watered by the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. They thought, this seems like a great place to take a break. This seems like a great place to set up shop, to build a life. There's water, there's wheat, there's pasture. And they did that. But that is when things start to go awry in our story. And, and the people get this idea that we see there in verse 4. Come, let us, make, come uh, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse over the face of the whole earth. They want to do that after they have made their bricks. They've burned them thoroughly. So what's going on here? Because this is a strange idea to us, I think. The people get this idea to make earthen bricks, along with bitumen as, as building materials, with a goal of building a tower into the heavens. But don't miss that, because where and what are the heavens? Well, the heavens are the sky. You can translate the word either way. But it's basically anything upward. And it's where they conceive of God as living. God lives in the heavens, and they want to build a tower to reach that. Why? They want to make a 
name for themselves so that they aren't spread out over the earth. What would be the point of that? What is going on here? One thing that's interesting about these two verses, uh, three and four, is that they resonate with what we know from history and archaeology of the ancient world. In that part of the world, the people did build giant towers. They wouldn't compete with our skyscrapers anymore, but they would have been very tall for the time. They would have been very tall for a long time. Some of these would have been among the tallest buildings in the world for centuries. And we know quite a bit about the construction of these buildings around that time, both from archaeological remains and from historical descriptions. And what are described in Genesis 11 seem to fit with what we know of the ancient Near Eastern ziggurats. What's a ziggurat? You can think of a ziggurat as something like a, a pyramid, except of instead of having like triangular sloped sides, it was made by stacking layers, essentially smaller and smaller floors, like a, like a, a, small ware, a large warehouse with a smaller warehouse on top of that and a smaller warehouse on top of that. A little more complicated, but you get the idea. So instead of sloping, it's sort of stair-stepped in, and there would be stairs to access some of those larger floors. And like described in this passage, they were generally made of earthen bricks, not like the giant sandstone blocks and things like that of the, the pyramids. In fact, this passage says it happened in Babel, or you know, also known as Babylon, and, and many ancient accounts exist of a particularly large ziggurat in Babylon. And many think that the structure that is described from history in Babylon uh, is the structure that's being discussed in Genesis 11, or at least the inspiration for what they're writing about in Genesis 11. Now, some of the ancient descriptions of that structure uh, seem impractical to modern architects. You can talk to Liz about that, I guess. Uh, although, since it's more about the actual science, maybe you want to talk to Abigna. Um, but there are accounts of uh, suggesting it was a bit over 90 meters tall, basically the the height of 55 Public Square. And if that's true, it would have been the tallest building in the world for quite some time. But modern estimates put it somewhere more in the 50-plus meter range because they don't think an earthen structure could have withstood those compression uh, stresses. But even at that height, it would have been enormously tall for a time. And we still have examples of some of these ziggurats in, in bits and parts. The top floors generally have eroded, but uh, for instance, the ziggurat of Ur is among the most famous, and it was probably 30 meters tall in its day, and its base still stands. That base is about 45 by 65. And so if, if the large estimates for the Babel ziggurat are accurate, and if it had similar proportions to the one in Ur, it would have been as tall as 55 public square, but its base would have been more like the entire size of the two parking lots that they're building the Sherwin-Williams building on across the street. So, enormous. But even at the smaller estimates, it would have been a massive construction project by any standard. But notice that the text in Genesis 11 
doesn't actually say how high the building was. It just says that they wanted to get to the heavens. And how far up do you have to go to get to the heavens? How far do you go into the sky until you say you've arrived at the sky? I don't know. But these ziggurats had great significance for the early civilizations on the Shinar Plain. Uh, the one in Babylon was called Edamanaki, or the Temple of the Foundations of Heaven and Earth. It was dedicated to the god Marduk. See, one of the things that ziggurats had in common is that that top level, that top floor that reached into the heavens, so to speak, was a temple, a shrine. They were places of worship. And by now, you might be getting a little picture of what these guys were trying to do. They were trying to ascend to the heavens to gain access to God. You see, the, the, the story of the Tower of Babel isn't about God condemning large building projects. This is a story about people who wanted to be like God. And in that sense, it begins to sound familiar, doesn't it? In Genesis 3, Eve was tempted to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and her husband didn't really take any persuading. Why? Because they had a promise that they would be like God. They wanted the things of God apart from God. And as a result, they were judged and they were cut off from God and eternal life. In Genesis 6, humanity has descended to such a dark place that human beings are apparently intermarrying with spiritual beings. And there seems to at least be undertones that the people were trying to regain what was lost. They were attempting to regain eternal life and the good things of God through their own scheming and their own sophisticated religious concepts. And as a result, they're judged. They're cut off from God in the waters of the flood. And now in Genesis 11, it seems like something very similar is happening. The Bible never expressly tells us exactly the thinking of these individuals and how they thought this would work for them. And, and I wonder if maybe that's for our sake. Because if we get the idea, we'll probably try to reproduce it. But they give us these hints these hints of people trying to be like God again. The point of these stories is never that they are a real threat or that humans could succeed. The point is the arrogance to act apart from God. It's the egoism that allows someone or a group of people to think that they can rule their own lives by their own moral code. It's a rejection of God as God, and it's a failure to give him what he is truly owed. The people of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to live forever. Now, we might not harbor their same superstitions, but doesn't that same impulse still drive us? Our midlife crises are our giant grave markers, our names on buildings, our striving for significance. Isn't, isn't the popularity of social media itself tied so much to our 
desire to make a name for ourselves? How often do we post something and then anxiously check the notifications to see who responded, every little beep on our device making us think, oh, I got to find out what that was or who said what or who liked it. And even if we don't do it for the likes, what about us thinks that our great ideas are worthy of screaming to the public? Even if you get good news, generally good news, none of you would go stand on public square and tell random people, just got my performance review today and totally killed it, hashtag career goals. Like, that's not going to happen. You'd seem crazy. And, And even if you just did that with your closest friends, or your good acquaintances, and you told that to them individually, people will start to think you're a narcissist. Sure, tell like a couple friends, but not every person you know. But we do like the likes, don't we? I mean, there's a reason why Facebook had for a short time a dislike button, but doesn't anymore. And YouTube kept the dislike button, but stopped showing the counts on it. There's a reason we like to be liked. We want significance. We want to go viral. Everyone gets 15 minutes of fame, but we want an hour. We want to be somebody. And so we engage in rigorous exercise plans to help extend our time on earth. We invest in expensive chemicals and potions and supplements to give us a little edge. We try a new diet every year. What, what, I don't know what's the popular one going to be for 2024, but if it's successful... We might just post pictures on social media again, right? We want to make a name for ourselves. We want in some way, in any way we can, to live forever. And if we can't, by golly, we're going to live just a little bit longer. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to be nobodies. We want to be in the limelight. We want to be in the action. We want to be on top of the ziggurat with our head in the heavens. Ask yourself an honest question. What am I really living for? But then pay attention to verse 5. It's the center of the passage. It's the, it's the crux of the whole thing. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Everything about this statement is dripping with poetic justice. For one thing, the the temples at the tops of those ziggurats, well, they were supposed to be where God dwelled. That that giant one in Babylon was supposed to be the place that Marduk would live. But if God came down, that means he wasn't there. He wasn't dwelling in their little temple they built on top of their giant tower. The nice little temple they built for him did not move the needle one inch for God. The Lord did not live at Enamanonki, or the top of any pyramid. In Psalm 99, we read that he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. And so God is pictured on a throne that is being held up by other spiritual beings. Why would he give that up for their mud bricks. But he doesn't just come down. He comes down to see. The Babylonians wanted a great tower 
that had its head or its top in the heavens. And without being explicit, this is full of religious pictures for the ancient reader. But no matter how large their building was, it was so small that God had to come down to see it. He wasn't impressed. The greatest achievements of human beings do not impress God. They may honor God. This one didn't. They may honor God, but they don't impress him. God came all the way down from his throne upon the cherubim to see what this commotion was about, this exciting building project these Babylonians had, and he's not threatened, he's not worried, he's not concerned. The whole scene is like a cosmic joke. The Bible is absolutely mocking those supposedly great Babylonians with their supposedly great tower. The Burj Khalifa is 2,722 feet, more than half a mile to the top of its antenna. It's so small, though, that if God were not God, he would need the James Webb Space Telescope to see it. And as impressive as that building may seem to us, it's not even in the top 10 of largest buildings in the world. It's the, it's the tallest, but the, the, largest, the largest by volume is the most exciting Boeing Everett factory. See, you need big buildings for planes and rockets and stuff. But if God were not God, and if he were to stroll across our earth, the Boeing Everett factory would be a small pebble that he would inadvertently kick across the path as he made his way, not even noticing. I suppose the the designers of these spectacles and those who commissioned them thought they were making a great name for themselves. But if a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, then the great pyramid in Giza has been around for about five days. We simply don't have a good internal sense of eternity, do we? For most of us, our greatest achievements will survive until our great-grandchildren and be forgotten. And for the exceptional among us, we may be remembered by a select group for a hundred years or so, maybe a few hundred years. But beyond that, the pickings get pretty slim, don't they? Only Near Eastern historians and extreme Bible nerds know about the once feared Tiglath-Pileser III. And as for Tiglath-Pileser II, he gets 11 sentences on Wikipedia, one of which is, little is known about his reign. We don't even know who led the ancient version of Babel and the building project mentioned They have been completely forgotten. Even if it was the ziggurat called Edamanaki, scholars aren't sure who built that or when. Sooner or later, everyone who lives to make a name for himself is forgotten. Does it really make us feel better to think that we might be forgotten on day two of eternity, if you're lucky, rather than 1 a.m. on day one? Well, that brings us to verse 6 and and 7. See, up to this point, man has been the, the chief actor. Humanity has been the chief 
player in the story. But then in verse 5, God comes down and everything flips. God reclaims the story. Pro tip, God will always reclaim the story because it's his story. And so it says, God says, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. All the human beings make one people, one, we might say, ethnic group, so to speak. Ethnicity in accurate terms is not about skin color. It's about the things that make you one, language and culture and religion, those sorts of things. And their shared background combined with their Sinful hearts, in this case, makes them quite dangerous. When God says nothing will be impossible for them, I don't take that to mean he thinks that they could really climb to heaven. That's been proven time and time again in this book that it doesn't happen. We've already seen that the tower to God is something of a joke. It's not saying that if God lets them go on that there's no task they can't complete, like, faster-than-life travel or general artificial intelligence. The thrust is more like this. There is no limit to how grotesque their evil can become. And we see that in our world, don't we? Winston Churchill has famously said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. We need a dose of Churchill, don't we? We, we, we have a tendency to believe our own hype about the greatness of the American experiment. But do but you know why democracy is, I think, somewhat functional? Because everyone's evil is checked by everyone else's evil. See, if a democracy is functioning right, and everyone has a say, we may do some really, really evil stuff, but in theory, it won't turn into runaway evil because the direction my evil heart thinks we should go gets put in check by the direction your evil heart thinks we should go. And so in this giant tug of war, we don't go too far down the evil rabbit hole. But historically, when people have tried to shut out other voices, to purify the people, to make them one, that's often come with great evil, hasn't it? whether by forced removal or forced conversion or forceful killing, when we have tried to make all people one by our own power, it is often ranked as among the lowest points in human civilization. And there's an irony in that. There's an irony in our sometimes desire for oneness. It's an irony that we saw last week, that we're already all one. Because we all come from Adam. We all come from Noah. And, and to the extent that we are different, this passage says that that is also of God's design. But hasn't it often been the case that when we have tried as human beings to make ourselves to be one, it's often in the name of making a name for our own selves? There's another attack, though, in these verses on the ancient religion of Mesopotamia. There really aren't any stories in the ancient world like this one in Genesis 
11. But there is a myth that we know about, uh, a myth that all the people could once upon a time speak the same language and therefore worship the gods in the perfect speech of the Sumerians. But an evil trickster god, sort of the Iraqi Loki, confused people's language to spite the gods. If the Bible's first audience knew that story, and they probably did, they probably did know it, or at least something like it, this would have been a pretty deft uh, undoing of that narrative. There wasn't some perfect language with some perfect speech in which to praise the gods, or even the God, Yahweh. Any idea of perfection left the story eight chapters ago. And God doesn't need Sumerian to be praised in, or Hebrew for that matter. Rather than a trickster confusing language to prevent the worship of the gods, God, the true God, confused languages to keep humanity from sin. And as we read last week in Acts chapter 17, part of that goal and we'll come back to this in a second here, is that they might find God and worship him. That's a very different motivation for confusing language. That brings us to the last couple of verses here. God spreads them over the face of the earth. They don't finish their construction of the temple as planned. And there's, there's great wordplay here, and there's at least one last dig at the ancient city. Actually, there's a lot of wordplay in this chapter, so... For, for you Bible nerds or, or language nerds, you will be greatly rewarded by digging into this passage, these nine verses, at some length. Um, but we read, therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And the word Babel sounds a lot like the Hebrew verb to confuse, which is Baal. And now the ancient Akkadians, they called it Babilim. And they thought that that sounded a lot like Gate of the Gods, which probably seemed like a pretty sweet name for what they, at the time, thought was a very powerful city, the center of culture and religion. But from the Hebrew point of view, Babel was a very fitting name because it was the place where they tried to make a gate for God. And God showed no interest in it and confused their language and sent them away. So the dispersal of the people then, is, it's a judgment from God. When the people of Babel lifted themselves up to heaven, God came down. And you generally don't want God to come down. Because when the Lord comes, that's a day of judgment. And it's a reminder that our pride and our attempts to make a name for ourselves, that's a dangerous game. But God didn't destroy these people like he did in the floods. He judged them. But he judged them in a way that we might say is a merciful judgment. If we turn back to that passage in Acts 17, where, where Paul is preaching at the Areopagus in Athens, and he says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This was a judgment that was designed to bring people back, not to Shinar, not to Babel, not to their tower, but to God. A chastisement. It was a correction. It was a discipline with the hope that by protecting them from their own evil, they might find him. But God wasn't going to merely wait for people to find him. He was invested in a rescue mission to save mankind, the creatures, us, that he made in his own image. The ancient Mesopotamians thought that they needed a single perfect language to worship the gods, but God set himself to see and to find a people, no matter what their language. Many, many years later, in the, in the last decades, before a resurgent Babylon under the leadership of a king named Nebuchadnezzar would come and sack Jerusalem and take the Jewish people captive, God sent a prophet to the Jewish people about a day when God would seek a people for himself, not just from the Jews, but from all the nations. And so that prophet, his name is Zephaniah, he writes in God's name, chapter 3 of his little book, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. God promised to change the speech of the peoples. This is not a change of language. It's not that kind of change. He's not going to have us all speaking Hebrew one day. This type of change is a change of orientation, a change in direction. It's a conversion of our speech. The lips that once praised Marduk or Allah or Olarun or Ruhanga will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. In time, God would send a rescuer to bring back his wayward creation that had been spread across the face of the earth. For the sake of us humans who have constantly tried to proudly lift ourselves up to heaven, God humbly came down and took on flesh. As Paul wrote in Philippians in the New Testament, Christ Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, although we have constantly tried to make a name for ourselves, here is what is said about the rescuer 
who humbled himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue, every language. And after he arose from the dead, after he returned to the right side of the Father, exalted because he was humbled, he sent his Spirit that his followers might go to all the scattered nations and gather a people for God. And on a spring day in Jerusalem in A.D. 33, God began to lift the curse of Babel as his followers spoke in other languages that they had never known. And people from all over the world that were gathered that day heard the good news about Jesus in their language. And they believed and they gained eternal life. They didn't have their words turned into Hebrew. Instead, they heard what their own language should sound like if it was converted, if it was changed to praise the risen God, Jesus Christ. That rescue mission continues, and it will continue until we see that day that John saw in his vision In Revelation chapter 7, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. For those who have lifted themselves up, who have tried fruitlessly to make a name for themselves, God offers this. Peace with him, joy, and a name written in the book of life. A book held by the one whose name is above every name at whose name every one of us must bow. But make no mistake, Jesus' coming in the flesh was a precursor for judgment. He is coming down, and he will see, and he will judge. And so let us rescue and if you're making a name for yourself would you surrender it to the one whose name is above every name let's pray father forgive us for the ways that we have struggled and strived to make ourselves greater than you higher than you to pretend that we are what we are not and may we be eternally grateful and thankful for the goodness that you have shown to us, that you have judged us, but you have judged us with chastisement and discipline. 
You have extended our lives that we might seek you and that we might find you and that we might come to know you. Father, for those of us who have called upon your name, whose speech you have converted, thank you, Father, for bearing with us, persevering with us through our sin and through our folly that we might come to you by your grace. And Father, if there be any who have not yet come to you, who are still striving, who are still trying to make a name for themselves with what they have in this life, may you grab them and may they bow now to Jesus whose name is above every name. Because he did what we did not do. He humbled himself. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his coming. Would we live in it and send us out, Father, among the scattered peoples to bring a people back for him. In his name we pray. Amen.